What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark DeVoe. And I am Mark Stay. And this episode is brought to you, as always, by our sponsors, who are the people who support this podcast. They can do it via the Bestseller Academy. They can do it via Patreon. And uh, to welcome our new patron this week, uh, Donaha Krieg. Uh, I hope I got that right, Donaha. Uh, welcome. Welcome to you. Can everyone make room for Donaka at the back? There we go. It's getting quite crowded in here. There are lots of people supporting us and Patreon who getting those deep dives, access to episodes early and all sorts of good stuff. So do check it out. Mr. D, how are you, sir? I'm I'm very excited, Mark, because at the time of recording in about uh, when this episode goes live in about 11 hours or so, we're going to be doing a live webinar. Oh, yes, we will. We? On yeah, the, the yeah. importance of accountability. And mm. it really is. I'm, I'll tell you what, we've been doing this for a while now, but I just, I'm really starting to suss this one out. That <laughs> the, one of the biggest challenges we've got as writers is, is accountability. How do we, how do we get up in the morning and write something when there's no one waiting there for this manuscript or this, you know, traditional publisher saying, where's, where's the book you promised us 16 months ago when we're writing on our own, it's absolutely <laughs> impossible to be self-motivated and to go through all those ups and downs that we all struggle with as writers. So we're going to be doing a special webinar on on this and how you can create accountability in your writing year, your writing month, your writing week, and your writing day. And um, if if you're listening to this and thinking, oh, no, I've missed it, because it's on the 21st of June, um, 2021. Um, if you've missed it and you think, oh, no, I really wanted to, to, to listen to that. Um, if you register, uh, you go to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com, you can register for the webinar uh, and watch the replay. So if you've missed it, you can still watch it. It'll be up for a, a week or so. And the Academy closes on the end of end of June. So starting 1st of July. So if you're just enjoying the Academy, hurry, hurry, get hurry. in. We're running out of spaces, yeah. folks. But if you've, if you've been hearing us banging on about this for a while, there is a reason why. It's absolutely amazing. And um uh, yeah, so Mr. Stay, you've had a week and a half. You've had book launches, uh, book fairs, book yes. all kinds. Yeah, it's uh, well, I've recorded a couple of things for the London Book Fair. So uh, if you've got, if if after seeing our wonderful uh, seminar and you get a taste for it, you want a bit more, um, there's a couple of things I'm doing at the London Book Fair. So I'm doing uh, a thing called Quick Quick Slow, which is about how technology has uh, has affected my writing year with a few other people so I'll I'll, I'll be um, talking about it from the perspective of a writer we've got Simon Appleby who made my which is a Woodville website he'd be talking about tech and how it's changed uh, and how he's been working with writers over the last year we've got Hermione Island who runs the, the Academy Divan uh, which is a small specialist uh, publisher and it's all being chaired by Justine Solomons who's uh, been a, a guest on the podcast as well as has Simon did a lovely deep dive with Simon on the on author websites and Justine did a lovely deep dive on networking, which if you're a patron, you can, you can get access to those. So do check that out. And then, uh, so that's going to be on the uh, 23rd of June uh, on 29th of June. I am doing a, I'm, I'm chairing a panel on the art of crime writing uh, in which I talked to a friend of the podcast, Mark Edwards and friends to be of the podcast, Abby Silver and RJ McBride, who hopefully will both be coming on the podcast at some point in the future, because that's what happens when I chat to people. I say, come on the podcast. Um, and we'll be talking about how to keep our readers engaged through the twists and turns of a crime story. And that's on the 29th of June. But all this info, all, all the all the nitty gritty, if you want to find out more, just go to londonbookfair.co.uk. You can register and uh, check it out. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's all good fun. It's all it's good fun. It's absolutely brilliant. But, you know, 
And here's a lesson for everyone who have everyone about persistence and trying hard. I mean, when we started this podcast, what, four, five years ago nearly, we were just lowly people. There was Mr. Stay <laughs> scribbling. He had, he had a little movie that came out, but not much had happened in his life. Now, chairman, chairing London chair, Book Fair. Chairing <laughs> a London Book I mean, Mr. Stay. I'm not the chairman of the London Book Fair. Let me, let me make that absolutely clear. Yeah. That, that, that's just one step away, though, isn't it, really? I mean, but cha- chairing a panel. World well, domination. Oh, absolutely. You better watch out. But um, that's brilliant. That's really exciting news. And I'm, I'm very, I mean, Mark Edwards, one of my favourite guests. Oh, we love him. Brilliant. Yeah, he's, we he's love great. him. We love yeah, him. If, you haven't, if you didn't listen to Mark's episode, that was in, in the now infamous season one. Um, which most people still binge. Um, but if you haven't listened to that one, I, I really enjoyed that one because it really opened my eyes to the idea of the hybrid author and the way that Mark yep. had kind of yep, done yep, both yep. and tried a bit of both. And, um, you know, a real sage in this world of what very rapidly changing publishing industry, but it feels like it's been happening for years, really. Well, the thing, the thing, I'll put a link in the show notes to to listen to the Mark Edwards one because the other big thing we talked about with Mark was online book launches, which when we first spoke to Mark was a bit of a it was he it was, was a bit new, on outlier. It? it was all new, whereas yeah. you know it's the norm now. So, um, just last night I did a wonderful book launch with uh, Queeve McDonald, and we got some great news about Queeve at the end of the show, uh, which we're we're going to talk about as well. Um, but yeah, that was you know we're on we're using Streamyard, and it's all very slick and smooth. We yeah. had here's a little connection for you we had music at the end from ronan mcmanus who is the brother of a neighbor of yours uh doesn't elvis costello live in your neck of the woods literally 15 minutes yeah. away yeah 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 me yeah. and elvis so we, brother like ronan. we are yeah <laughs> <laughs> No, I think actually, if, if, you. If, <laughs> I know, well, if Elvis is listening, actually, if Elvis hasn't left the building, um, I I really want to meet up with Elvis because he's a Liverpool fan and I'm a Liverpool fan as well. And there's a few of us that mm-hmm. have formed this kind of like support group out here where we all get together and watch games. So <laughs> I'll be reporting down the road um, about my my adventures of watching a football game with, with Elvis. Uh, that'd just be very random. Excellent. Very, very random. So Make it happen. On that. Make yeah. it happen. Yeah, it's just for yeah, fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's good evening. Yeah. Ah, brilliant stuff. Well, we, we've got tons to talk about, but I actually really want to dive into our interview this week, Mark, because this is a mm, this is a brilliant it. interview. Um let's 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 do an intro to the amazing Joe Thomas. Yes, uh, Joe Thomas was born in Hackney, London, but lived in Sao Paulo, Brazil, between 2002 and 2012, uh, before returning to London. And his time there led to the Sao Paulo Quartet, which is Paradise City, a gringa, a playboy, and now Brazilian Psycho, the final book in the quartet. Uh, We talk uh, about how Joe takes the reality of Sao Paulo's crime, corruption and culture to create vivid and engaging fiction, how living there gave him an insight that he might not otherwise have had. We discuss his early unpublished novels, what he learned from them, how his writing habits have evolved, that he has a family and much, much more. Excellent. So let's dive in and listen to Mark chatting with the wonderful Joe Thomas. Joe Thomas, welcome to the bestseller experiment. How are you today, sir? I'm very well, thank you. Um, how are you? I'm delighted to be talking to you. Ah, I'm very good, very good. Thank you very much. Um, we're here to talk about Brazilian Psycho, which is the final book in the Sao Paulo Quartet. And this this book takes place over 15 years, it incorporates real life crimes, the complex politics of Brazil, poverty, corruption, rebellions, serial killers, cover-ups. Already, I'm imagining a very, very tangled web. But this is something you've already done, you know, at least three times before with great success. How do you even begin to shape all of that story noise into a narrative? Um, it's it's a, it's a good question, <laughs> uh, in, and in fact, it, it's something that has progressed across the, the series of novels, the quartet of novels. Um, the first three books, Paradise City, Gringa, and Playboy, take place over a short period of time but relate to a much bigger period, if that makes sense. So they're kind of over, they take place over a week or a few days, a couple of weeks, I can't even remember exactly. But all of them refer to events, much broader um, real life events and sort of social issues, perhaps you might say in in Brazil. Um, And when I came to to conceiving of the final uh, part of the quartet, which is also just to know a very good place to start (laughs) because it goes back, it begins um, seven or eight years before book one, and then ends after book three. Um, but the, only the final part is beyond that. So in fact, if, if people are looking for a way into the quartet, this is actually kind of introduces and completes it. 
Um, and we, I talked to my editor about a way of sort of topping and tailing the series and trying to capture the the bigger the, that sort of bigger thread that runs through across that period of time. And and the, it's no coincidence that it begins on 2003 on the 1st of January when Lula was elected president or took or inaugurated as president, the socialist president of the country, and ends 16 years later when Bolsonaro is inaugurated as now is tragic presidency and the novel was an attempt to brazilian psycho particularly but the, the quartet as a whole is an attempt how that that social change that political change occur and how to do that through um a crime narrative because of course crime en enables you to unpeel kind of the layers of uh, of, a, of a place to to it allows access a, a detective character you know can reach the the highest and lowest parts of society in different parts um and so that that's what it was a, what, what is a, what it was about really was about trying to tell the story of a city the, the the tangled web as you say is 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 somewhat demonstrative of the place it is a it is a very complex and difficult place but also a, a vibrant and exciting place and i hope that that among, alongside the kind of darkness of the novel and the and the kind of horror of much of, of, of the of corruption police corruption brutality that kind of element that, that, that we see in Brazil only the other day, there was a, a very tragic occurrence occurred in a favela in Rio, which is obviously a different city. Um, but, but I wanted to, alongside that to try to also capture something of that vibrancy and excitement of, of the city. And I hope that that's something that comes through in, in, the, in the novels. It's interesting that a, a friend of a friend is Brazilian and on Facebook it you know, you you read about these things in the news and 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 they're appalling. But until you hear how it directly affects someone, it it doesn't become real in a way, and it it, it becomes a human story. So tell us about the characters in your stories and, and how they kind of you know give face to to some of the things that go have gone on in Sao Paulo yeah. in Brazil. I think yeah, I think I think it might be good a good way of doing that would be to sort of talk an anecdote of how the novel all the whole series really came from and, and, and it relates exactly to what you're describing and then i'll kind of link that to the characters afterwards if that's okay mm. the um um when i was living in sao paulo in, in which i did for just about 10 years um in may 2006 um there was there was a mother's day weekend uh the friday you know the sunday a big deal um in the country and on the friday afternoon uh, the, the international school where I worked, which is a British international school, some news of a, an attack um, staff, mainly Brazilian staff. Um, and we were sitting, you know, it was at three o'clock after classes were just finishing up. And this, these rumours kind of filtered around. And we wondered what kind of attack that might be. Is that could it be a terrorist attack? This is obviously 2006. Um, what, what, you know, what shape or form would this take? We were told to go home early. Um, or at least to leave then. I mean, it wasn't that early, but it was still early. And on the drive home, I remember seeing a couple of burnt out buses on the on a major road, which would normally be very busy at that time, but was empty. I remember seeing smoke dotted about. And I remember having that kind of sense of, of, of the post, <laughs> a kind of apocalyptic landscape. It felt like kind of Blade Runner or something. The idea of this, this huge city that had suddenly stopped, and yet there was some ominous feeling, but no one was quite sure what it was. The, I got home over the weekend. I, I spent behind the gates in the condominium where I lived with uh, Palestinian men playing tennis and <laughs> eating barbecue, determined not to, to for their for their weekend not to be disrupted. But what had happened was the the major drug gang, the major gang in, in Sao Paulo, and one of the two major gangs in Brazil had requested um, flat screen televisions for their prison cells to watch the World Cup, which of course was two thousand and six, the football World Cup. And these, this request had been denied by the authorities. And as a result, they uh, caused some chaos, as they, as they put it. They were going to mess up the city. So they're what, what turned, it turned into a full-on rebellion in which the sort of foot soldiers of the gang that, that were not in prison went, went to war with the military police. And over three days, there were about 160 people were, were killed, um, off, many in a kind of tit-for-tat scenario between military police and and gang members some caught in the crossfire obviously tragically there was a whole series and and the city was kind of shut down um and it was a very very strange experience to be both in this place very close to one of the favelas where there was activity and yet desensitized by the condominium experience of living 
but to know it was existing. On the Monday morning, going back to school, the headmaster, he'd been speaking to the chief of police whose son studied at the school. It was a very exclusive uh, school, very rich and important figures. His son went there or goes there, for example. And uh, the, um, the, the chief of police had told the headmaster that, that um, people were, uh, that, sorry, that officers were able to claim danger money if they'd been shot at or attacked in some way over this weekend. And so it turned out that many officers were shooting at their own police stations and vehicles to, 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 to create evidence that they'd been shot at to, in order to claim this danger money. <laughs> so so this, was a, this was one of those moments when, when you think, I mean, this is an extraordinary thing to hear and to have seen. And yet again, there's that slight distance. And that's something that's interesting about Sao Paulo is that crime is normalized, violent crime is normalized. And yet, because of the inequality of society, if you are in that sort of higher echelon you're protected sanitized from it so that that and i felt that that sort of that that kind of brazenness of the request of the gang the the response the brutal response of the military police and then the seemed to me a very very extraordinary weekend that i that i've lived through but not exactly been a part of and I and I and that was the starting point really for the for the for the quartet. But I only I only wrote about that weekend in Brazilian Psycho. And what I've done and how I've done that is to to, to look at um, the favela in, in which one of the key favelas uh, in the city, Paraisópolis, which translated as Paradise City, uh, a legal aid lawyer who works in there, uh, a detective character, a member of the military police who appears to be a decent person, and then a favela. Um, kid who is a sort of messenger um, for the, the, the drug gang. So kind of multiple perspective for that particular scene. And, and this, this weekend forms a, is the kind of final part, final point of the first, maybe third or half of the novel. Um, and, and, I, and, and researching it further, it was, it, you know, it wasn't as simple as, as that rather playful sound element that I said at the beginning the drug gang whose leaders are in prison want to watch the World Cup it was a lot murkier than that and a lot more complicated and a, and a lot more frightening so it, it was a really interesting experience for me to, to research it 15 you know not 15 12 years later let's say 10 to 12 years later properly look at, into the documents and see what really had happened and try to try to piece that together with my own narrative of, of it too um yeah, so so those elements of, of fear, danger, and corruption. You tell these stories, and 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 they they can sound almost you know quaint or the corruption you know foreign very much from a British perspective. And then and then you look at what the UK has become, and you think you know what an arrogant position to to look at South America as a, as a sort of corrupt uh, country when we're run by uh, the corrupt government, <laughs> for example. Yeah. But anyway, that was again <laughs> something that come out in the last in the last few years in my mind that that sense of, you know what, Brazil might be, it might, it is a more violent society. There is, there are, there are extremes of, 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 you know, visceral extremes, but it's the same issues that, that we experience here. And I, and I hope that Brazilian psycho will resonate um, with, with British and, and, and readers beyond American or, you know, English language, I'm thinking at this point, um, because of that, because of that shift from liberal to populist, perhaps. Mm. Yeah, sorry, that was a very long answer. <laughs> no, this is very good, very good. Uh, you lived in Sao Paulo for 10 years, as you said, which will give you you know, an incredible insight to its culture and, and politics. But as you say, it is incredibly complex. How long was it before you felt that you could write about the place and the people and its culture with with the confidence to be published? Because you know, it's, it's one of these things that you are still an outsider looking in, but... You were embedded there for ten years. When when came the point where you thought, okay, I I can write about this? Um, it was when I came back, actually, um, uh, and it was partly to make sense of the um, of the place and understanding that the the, the place that the, you know I suppose yeah. Well, the first thing I the first thing I tried to write about the city was was a kind of a, a city novel, which I call I think I called it Sao Paulo. And and I and I and I thought the way to 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 write about a city that of that size, scale, and and complexity would be to have you know sort of twelve narratives, and and try to capture all these different voices. And it was a comp a long and I think in the end 
it, 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 it helped me get an agent, but it didn't get published. Um, and I now look back at, and I can see why, but I've, and I've mined it since then. But one of the narratives I wrote was the detective narrative, um, the character. And that's that, and his story or his, his, that narrative, his, that character became uh, the, the protagonist in the first book, Paradise City. Um, and yeah, so to answer your question, it was, there was two, there were two, two things that happened. One, I came back to London, I came home and wanted to make sense of the place, not so much my experience, but of the place where I lived. And secondly, I realized that the best way to tell that was to take a very, very, very single, in the, certainly in the first book, uh, a single point of view narrative and, and, and try to filter the place through the, through this character. And once I realized that was the effective way of doing it, rather than having this kind of multiple, kind of multiple um, perspectives, that then led me to, to experimenting in the, in the next books. And Brazilian Psycho has a large cast of characters, but it was that, um, that revelation. Oh yeah, you, you don't need a huge cast to, to do justice to the place. And that came after about a year or so of writing about the place, which was a year, a couple of years after I left. Um, so there was that. And then, and then the second realization was the understanding that, that, um, that I, I felt like there was a rigor to the research and approach and the, the desire to root it, root the series in, in real life structures, if not real life events too. Um, and the continued conversations I had with Brazilian friends um, was, were helpful. And then finally, was, it was, these books are much about the city of Sao Paulo. You know, obviously the title Brazilian Psycho, they are focused on that city. I, my knowledge of the rest of Brazil is, is, is scant, but I do have a good understanding of, of how the city of Sao Paulo works. But of course that's changing now. And, and I'm, and, and yeah, I feel, I, I, I don't feel, I don't feel confident that I'd write any more about the city. And, and I'm very happy to have been given the opportunity to create this document, which again is, is, is very much from an outsider's eyes, but also insider outsider is the way I kind of look at it after that experience. Paradise City, which was published, I believe, in 2017, uh, is the first book in the quartet. Was it always going to be a quartet? I mean, you've been compared uh, a number of times to James Elroy, and he he's had various, you know, the LA quartet. That's pretty ambitious. Did you ever doubt that you could pull it off? Were you were you thinking, oh gosh, I wish I'd made this a duology or just one book? <laughs> Were there any? Uh, what was it like being at the foot of the mountain? Was, two, yeah, there were two. <laughs> well, um, originally I had uh, the idea of a quartet in mind. Um, and that was because of, you mentioned James Elroy, but also David Peace, the Red Riding Quartet. Yeah. Um, I liked the idea, frankly, of a, of a, of a thing that is complete. Um, much as I admire, say, Ian Rankin or Val McDermott, I, I find detective series um, less satisfying to read as a, as a document, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. You know, you can go and read the Red Riding Quartet and you've, you've had that experience. You can read yeah, the Elroy Trilogy, fine. the Elroy Quartet. Yeah. Um, you, and yeah, and there is that sense too. And perhaps it's that. I mean, I, as I said, my, I've read a whole number of Ian Rankin's Rebus novels and I think they're all ter terrific. But, but, but you know, I've, I always worry, when am I going to finish? <laughs> and that's, <laughs> that's a selfish perspective from a reader. Um, that's yeah, as a reader. So, so the first, the starting point was that I'd like to try to fashion something in which I can feel it has depth and weight and authority, but also is 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 you know is there. Um, yeah, so that that ambition came from 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 my my thoughts as a reader. Then then what happened, of course, is that the, the publishing world isn't always a straightforward one. Um, my and the, on a practical level, and you talked about. Um, listeners or watchers um, being being writers, so people will not understand this completely. I was originally offered a two book deal for the first two, um, and I was hopeful that I would get the opportunity for to, to complete it. Um, and but it came in two stages. I then did single book deals, so for Playboy, and I and I and, I, and then Brazico. Um, in between, I published a, a novel called Bent, which is a standalone novel set in Soho in the nineteen sixties. And behind the lines in in the war for SAS operations, which is slightly different. Yes, <laughs> um, but um, but the actual in actual fact, the reality of the publishing world, meaning I wasn't given a full book deal at the beginning, but I did have in mind what I wanted to do, meant that I was I took some time to think about how Playboy and then Brazilian Psycho would be shaped. Basically, Paradise City and, and Gringo were written pretty much 
when the deal that was originally was 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 done. Um, Playboy, I started, then shelved, wrote the other novel, Bent. And then when I came back to it, I understood I wanted to do something else. So that time was really valuable. And then with Brazilian Psycho, as I said earlier, that sense of topping and tailing and producing a grand sort of scale, that wasn't something I'd necessarily thought of before. So so on the one hand, it was it's terrifying and, and when, well, terrifying might be too strong a word, but it's nerve wracking when you're not sure mm. if you're able to complete a project but in fact, it worked out very well for me in the end because it gave me that time to consider how to do that. Um, and if there had been just simply been a form book deal, I, I don't think Brazilian Psycho would look like it does. And I'm really, really proud of it. I don't think Playboy would either. That's a short, sort of almost pulpy novel, but with a political backdrop. And mm. and I was, yeah. So that was, on on the one hand, the uncertainty, on the second, on the other, it really made, I, I hope it's meant that the, the books are, are um, there is a progression in the, across the four. Excellent stuff. Let's let's go back to when you started, uh, and you started writing in your twenties. And I uh, I saw somewhere mention of unfinished novels, and because we're going to have a lot of listeners who are starting out, and might have a few of those unfinished novels in a drawer. Did you ever think of, oh, I'm not cut out for this, or did you just keep going? What what kept you writing? Um, yeah. So the. I did start writing and I, I and I think the first thing I wrote was a um a kind of hopeless man in his 20 <laughs> novel and I was I did it really badly and, and it is really difficult uh, you know the, these novels are both are both you know there was an abundant fewer now I think but and when they're done well they're great aren't they but um the world doesn't need any more hapless male <laughs> uh novels of that sort I think but it was interesting and then I then I then I thought about writing historical fiction and my grandfather was in the SAS so I did a bunch in the war and the first lot so I did a bunch of research for that and, try, and wrote what I thought was a, a fairly serviceable thriller um set in on the operation that he was in but but I looked back and I realized it wasn't actually very thrilling <laughs> it was quite boring uh, but it did it did instill a sort of discipline of of, of process perhaps and then a lot of that popped up in bent when when I got the chance to do that um mm. so then I and then I and I tried something else um but I when I say they were unfinished in the sense they were unsatisfying mm-hmm. um but what it came down to I guess in the end my my the reason why I was writing enough to produce these words was because pure and simple it made me feel better I wanted to do it I liked the craft the discipline the sitting down the carving out of time um, the way I would, com- would compare it was my brother is a, um, he used to do a lot of triathlons and Ironman competitions, that kind of thing. Not, not a level, but for fun. And, you know, if he did, if he trained on a day, he felt better for that, that day. And I kind of felt the same way with writing. And, and I, and I also think that when I started in, in earnest, I was living in Brazil and my life wasn't hugely satisfying for many reasons, which I won't go into, but it, to be able to sit down in a in a in to find a quiet place in the condominium where I lived uh, outside for a half term or holiday periods and and focus on something that I that was making me feel good um, it was that was a real valuable thing and it wasn't until I after doing that for a number of years that I thought and then I realised I wanted to leave Sao Paulo as well for, and again there were personal reasons but also I the place too and professional reasons and I, I did a creative writing. MA at Royal Holloway. I work in education. I now lecture in English lit and creative writing. And I, I, although I taught literature, I never had a qualification. I thought this was a good way of combining an interest with, with there was a critical part of it that would provide that qualification. And it seemed to me to be a, not just the perfect fusion of my professional and then kind of at that point, hobby interests, but also a way of escaping a, a city in a situation I wanted to leave. Um, and so, yeah, and that was, and then I took a whole year to do that. And I was lucky. I was able to stay with my brother. I was in my early thirties. So I, I'd spent 10 years working, had money saved that I could live on. And I, I spent a year reading and writing. And then that became the novel that wasn't published. Right. <laughs> and the one after that was, so it was, it was, the, so I, I think, yeah, that, I hope that answers the question. It was mm. a desire to, to, to kind of, to, to work really, that, that kept me doing it. Excellent. We're obsessed with writers' habits on this podcast, and you've <laughs> mentioned that you're, you're a lecturer, which must take up an awful lot of time. And 
if you're teaching writing day in day out how does that affect your your sort of writing are you are you someone who writes every day or do you as you mentioned you mentioned writing in half term is that something you just take take a chunk of time and write then I try to write every day or at least do some writing every day. The difference between teaching at university and teaching at school is that university teaching frees up an awful lot more time, actually. Um, and part of the job as a lecturer is to be producing research. So you're justified in in using that time. I work part-time there too. Um, I think the best way to answer this question, I'm not hugely precious about, about the time. I, I am, and this has been... This has changed too now for the better because I have now have a son who's only 20 months old, just about to turn that, that age. So I, I, I completed Brazilian Psycho in his the first few months of his life and then wrote another novel, which is the next one um, in the, the next over the next year. And it, yeah, I, I, I've always been quite an efficient writer, as in if I got two hours in the morning, I'll do the, the word counts, the, the 1,000 to 1,500 words I want to produce. And I won't. And I won't need to sort of have a quiet space and you know in the middle of nowhere for the whole day. I'm mm. pretty focused. Mm. And then since having a, a child, that's 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 sharpened <laughs> because of course, yeah, you, you really do have to. And thinking about it's been really interesting thinking about a, a young family where I now have you know the three of us. And how do you? What's the best thing for for the child? What's the best thing for your partner? So I've had to shift a little bit, perhaps in in my my. I always thought the best time for me to write was first thing in the morning, but I'm finding actually, it might be that might not be true. So having those habits and the adapting of them is is, is important. But also, I think for me, it's knowing that. Yeah, I I plan my work quite fairly carefully in my mind. I've got an idea of of of, of the big picture of a novel or a series of novels. Um, I can do little bits of research. I, I research as I write. So, so I don't struggle to find something to do on a sort of daily basis mm. for the book, even if it's reading a few paragraphs or, or figuring out a kind of a narrative structure or something. So, yeah, that that's how that my habits are. Try to have habits. <laughs> As a lecturer, um, what's the most common challenge that faces your students, and how do you help them overcome it? Um, that's a good question. Um, the most common, I'd say the most common, and obviously this is a generalization in, in, inevitably, um, might be the balancing of exposition with uh, realism. Right. Uh, I tend to teach, I teach a mixed, a blend of, of courses, short story workshop, creative nonfiction, and some genre fiction too. But but it's 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 really across genres you get the same the same kinds of. It questions coming up um, with the work, the same kinds of things, and I think sometimes it's 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 showing students elegant ways of presenting information. That's one that's one challenge uh, within that dialogue, for example. Um, so it, it's trying to show students, especially with with fiction, especially with and well, you know, I'm creative nonfiction, but that sense that that sense of how do you what is it that you want to present. And how do you do that in a way that is elegant, compelling uh, within a narrative? Um, and, and, and that, I think the most natural writers are the ones that somehow understand that, that you don't plonk the exposition at the beginning mm. um, and, 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 and are always looking at ways of, of, of bringing in backstory or context in sl- subtle and interesting ways. Mm. And I, I'd say that's, that's, that's a difficult problem for any writer, let alone a and a student in the first year doing creative writing degree. Um, but yeah, so that's one thing. I, I'm, I'm really lucky. My students at Hertfordshire are great and they're really, and they've, it's been a very difficult year, as you can imagine, teaching mm-hmm. online and for them especially, I mean, not for me necessarily, um, although there have been challenges, but the, the way in which they have risen to those challenges in terms of writing about, for example, in the creative nonfiction modules, writing about, their experiences of lockdown or the pandemic with warmth and humor and and insight has been for me absolutely revelatory it's lovely to read stuff like that so you know the, the key you know this is not the question you asked but but as a as a lecturer and a teacher in any form i think and i've worked in a few different educational settings the the, the that magic of learning from your students if that that is there 
then then the job is is so rewarding and you learn a lot as much and and it, and you know that that is i found it at university that that's continued it's more it's perhaps more obvious at school level especially when you're helping them get into the university which was part of the job i did because they're like you've done that and then they move on with you at university it feels like it's a more of a it feels like you're helping on a on a less tangible way apart from the grade but in a way that is equally satisfying and that you learn so much from it um i'm a much better i'm better at writing for for that and i'm also very very lucky because the wonderful short story writer and novelist lucy caldwell is a close friend and we we have a first reader relationship so my teaching of the short story has been hugely informed by reading drafts of hers <laughs> uh, as well as so, so so these things are all i think one yeah they're all it's all connected isn't it and mm. and it's i'm really lucky to to be able to work um doing the two things that i love most professionally speaking which is which is teaching and writing fantastic and what's next from you mentioned a novel that had been completed is um is Brazil behind you now? Are you looking to more novels along the lines of Bent? What's what's coming up from you next, Joe? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Brazil is is is. I'm not going to be writing anymore on, on Brazil. Um, in fact, while we were talking, my agent's name just flashed up on my phone, the, which is pertinent <laughs> because I've just just uh, yeah. So I've I'm just we're just negotiating. We're just working out the details of of a, a new project with my publisher, which the first novel, which is or the first novel of which is written, basically, which is a uh, running, I was born in Hackney in London, and in, and I wanted to write about that period from 1978 to 1990 in three novels, which were provisionally called White Riot, Red Menace, and True Blue. And the idea is that they, it's a sort of alternative history of the borough of London borough of Hackney through real life crime, uh, looking at the rise and fall at the period of the rise and fall of Thatcher, and then running a kind of countercultural protest slash music element through it <laughs> that's oh, the idea wow. and, it, and it is yeah so it's, it's, it begins at the rock against racism concert mm. in 1978 and ends at the poll tax riots that's the that's the, the the overarching structure of the trilogy and as i said I, i'm i'm kind of looking at editing the first book and inching my way into the second and waiting for the details to oh, see that, if it all happens that sounds nervously good. waiting for that confirmation <laughs> I grew up in in Hornsey, so uh, you can sign me up for that. Oh. I'm, uh, yeah, you've sold one copy at least, so <laughs> <laughs> they all count. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Joe. Thanks so much for talking to us, and hope to speak to you again soon. Yeah, thank you. I, I really enjoyed that. Thanks so much for the opportunity. You can tell Mark, can't you, that Joe is a natural storyteller because when he started telling that story yeah, yeah, yeah. about the prisons in Brazil and the World Cup, I was just absolutely in trot. I just listened. I was like, oh my gosh, this <laughs> is incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, he, he, and that that's what comes from living there, I think. So, I mean, last week, listeners, we were talking to Damien Lewis, the historian, about researching into history and writing narrative nonfiction. But with Joe here, he takes real situations, very recent history and current affairs, of course, and creates a fiction around them but instead of you know talking to veterans and survivors of something he's embedded himself in that place and its culture for a decade so you know that can't but help but rub off on on your storytelling and it's such a, a vivid and lively place so uh, that definitely informs the way that he he tells his stories i think absolutely if you if you've been, if you've lived somewhere you've experienced the full five maybe six senses of that environment mm -hmm. and you can't imagine that in your head you, you, you i mean we, we have incredible imagination but if you lived there it's so authentic and it's quite interesting because it reminded me of a, of a of a story i once um heard from from a student i was working with who said they were desperate to go to the place that they wanted to write about and that was the reason why they never finished their book because they never had actually gone and immersed themselves and it was a block and i actually think it reminded me joe reminded me of write what you know you know, if you've lived some, it doesn't matter. I mean, Brazil's amazing because it's like such a, for, for me anyway, it seems like such a foreign land and a different culture. And it's got all these incredible things that I can learn about it through Joe's books. But um, when people are using it as a, as a reason not to write their book because they haven't been there, then then go back in, in time. You know, where have you been? Where have you lived? And for Joe, obviously, he's, he, you know, great experience living there for 10 years. And it's no doubt made an incredible impact on his books. 
I, I mean, I recall the conversation we had with Michelle Paver, who went halfway up a mountain in the Himalayas, if you recall. <laughs> so yes. that was, you know, but obviously not all of us can afford or have the time or the, the luxury to do that. So, yeah, I think it is. Uh, I mean, moving here to Kent. It's not quite as exotic as perhaps the Himalayas or, or, or Sao Paulo, but it has its own charms, you know. But ha- having having moved here has definitely informed my books in a way that really surprises me. Ha- just sitting there looking out of that window and seeing the seasons change and having become this amateur ornithologist as well, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's, it has changed the way that I write because I now do a, a nature pass on, on my books when I'm doing a draft. I make sure I, I kind of, you know, sprinkle a little bit local color on there but i know we'll talk and we've mentioned Queeve once already and we'll mention him again at the end but i know there's a book that he wants to write that is set in brooklyn and he doesn't want to write it until he's been to brooklyn mm. and walked the streets and smelled the smells and all that kind of thing and ben aronovich as well you know ben aronovich his books are all set in london he I, I think he said as much on on the episode when we spoke to him he said that he'd set them in london because he could step out of his door and jump on the tube and do his research right there and then. Uh, and um, uh, I think it was Natalie uh, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, who was, I was just about um, to say, actually. Talking yeah. about, yeah, 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 same thing. You know, London's yeah. on, on her doorstep. So, London's um, on her doorstep, but so, yeah, she also then extended it to her kind of profession as well about writing what she knows about working in law and being around crime. And so I think mm. I think that, to me, that's such a huge thing. If, if you're stuck writing your book right now and you're just not really into it, you're not really feeling it, think about what you can bring into your book that you've personally experienced, that you have in-depth knowledge of, just not as a writer, but just because you've 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 been a part of something, um, you know, whether it's the the family kind of heritage, the upbringing that you had as a kid, whatever it is. That's I think where a lot of the juice lies. It's it's all about discovering your own voice. And for so long, and I, I can I'm testament to this. For so long, you when you're starting out, the temptation is to be like someone else. Uh, I and I, I've I've mentioned this before because I loved. David Mamet, for example, I love David Mamet's plays and his rat-a-tat-tat dialogue and that kind of thing. Uh, I also love John Sullivan, who wrote Only Fools and Horses. So mm. for, for a long time, certainly my early plays were this weird mishmash of these two cultures, these two halves of myself. And I was I was playing in other people's costumes. I was cosplaying, you know, uh, fancy dresses as, as, those, as those kind of people. And it took me a while just to relax and be myself. Uh, I, and it took took quite a long time for me to get my head around that. I find that fascinating. You said that, Mark, because it it kind of makes me think. We've talked. I, I always remember um, Joan Harris talking about how it took her th- it to her third book to find her voice, and then that was her mm. biggie chocolat. Um, but what I found fascinating about what you just said is it kind of made me think. I wonder if our early voices are impressions, like mm. we're, we're we're mimicking our idols. Because let's be honest what we talk about in the podcast constantly is why we show up to do this, why everyone should write a book, at least one book in their lifetime is it could inspire one person or it could inspire Mm. millions. We don't know until we've written that book, but that's how it starts. We get inspired by someone else and then we want to emulate what they've done. We want to be like them. We want to be their voice. We want to be the continuation of their voice maybe. And then we maybe start out in this world where we're trying to be them. I mean, I know from absolutely like I've, I've studied, I love to study people. I love to study musicians. I've studied songs. I've studied, you know, writing as we do on the podcast. And so in some ways our early voice is often an impression. Mm. And then as we slowly realize that we're much better at our own voice than trying to impersonate someone else, we find our voice. And I, th- I wonder if it is just a rite of passage that we all go through. Yeah, I think that's that's very interesting. Um, I think when you look at young children, they will often sound like their parents and mimic their parents until they develop a voice of their own, until they ta- start answering back. Um, <laughs> yes, that, yeah. Actually, that's, that's, that's the moment. Yeah. That's the moment, isn't when they it? Find their the moment, own voice. They, yeah, when they start stamping their feet, say, "No, Daddy, you're wrong." Actually, it's like, "Oh, okay, this this day has come." Yeah, that's yeah. it, isn't it? Yeah, and the same thing we... happens to writers. I think. I think that you know you discover and the the write what you know advice is is so is brilliant advice, but it's often misinterpreted. I remember being told that. When when I was 14 and thinking, what? I'm a 14-year-old, know-nothing teenager. What, what? I'm not going to write. I want to write about spaceships and, and dragons and magic and stuff like that. But of course, 
the write what you know is the the way to interpret that is to say write what you're passionate about write with your voice write with my voice about dragons i shouldn't try to be like david eddings or tolkien or or ursula le guin i should put my own voice into and that's what i did with and the magic and that's what i've done with the woodville books and you know so it's um it is it is a question of putting your own unique stamp your own voice on those ideas which is why with the wonders of self-publishing we will see you know there's no gatekeepers between you and putting your voice out there uh, and um and getting yourself heard it's easier to write as well it's easier to write when you have immersed yourself in it when you know it you don't you know you, you can build the imagination on top of the foundation of what you already know. But when you know it, you can write with conviction, you can write with authenticity. And I think that makes for a richer story. Yeah. I mean, you say it's easier. I mean, the, one of the worrying things is that thing of putting your head above the parapet and saying, look, this is me. This is mm. who I am. And you put that on the page. And that that can be um, that can lead to all kinds of self-doubt and self-editing and kind of, do I really want to put this out there about myself? Do I really want to be this honest about this thing that I've, I've, I've been, or that I don't like talking about, but I want to put it on the page. And there's a fear that comes with that. And the, the fascinating thing to me is the more of that, because I've got this with um, Unwelcome, the movie that is, is, you know, is, is in post-production at the moment. It's the most, Probably the most personal thing I've written. I mean, it's about goblins and you I was know, gonna say, I'm supernatural. To the link. <laughs> but the but the couple in that the couple in that film and what they go through is a massively exaggerated version of something that Claire and I have gone through, and it's right. very very personal. And I I said to her, Are "You okay with this going out there?" You know, and it, no one will know unless they listen to this listen to this podcast. Cast, of course. Mm. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's uh, but it was uh, and it's interesting. I was talking with the director. We were doing EPK stuff which is electronic press kit and john and i did a we actually we got uh we got uh members of the bxp team and members of the academy to send in questions so that's another little perk so they're going to be on maybe a making of dvd or blu-ray or whatever oh yeah and we answered their questions on this sofa here and john made the point he said the first draft of of the the script he wasn't that impressed with and he he urged me to put more of myself in it, to hmm. to put more of the because he knew it was there, and he I think he instinctively knew I was holding something holding something back. So he encouraged me to put more of the personal specific stuff in there, and that specificity. Oh, I said that first first time. That's, uh, that, actually, that's you win an specific, award for that. Oh, I can't do it again. I can't do it again. <laughs> but that. With, that thing, that thing. <laughs> that thing suddenly had a universality to it. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's that's a big lesson to learn. The things you think, well, no one's going to be interested in this. Actually, we might be totally fascinated by it. If you've experienced the emotion of something, and you write about it, it connects emotionally with the reader. I'm convinced, one hundred percent of that. Something which which I learned early on in songwriting. Like if you want to write a song which connects with people write a universal emotion something which really people have experienced on one level or other it's not identical to you but it's they, they'll 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 have experienced it on one level or another something going back though mark you said about um this idea of putting your head above the parapet and the fears that people have of mm. putting themselves into their stories too much that was one of the questions that came up in my recent coaching session on the academy we do a life coaching session um, live. Uh, Mark does one as well on craft coaching. I do life coaching. Um, so every two weeks you get like an hour of that. But that very question came up and it was absolutely mind-blowing because it was holding somebody back of actually really writing their book because they had all this amazing stuff inside them they desperately wanted to express. But their biggest fear was what if I put it on the page? And mm. what came out of that particular um, session in the academy and we've recorded it that's the thing about the academy if you come into the academy you get all the recordings of everything we've previously done but it said and i said i said to, to her it's a bit like being an actor on stage you learn your lines and you try to remember them but if you forget a line as long as you as long as you cover it up no one actually knows in the audience mm. that you've forgotten a line right? You might be gutted like, oh, I forgot that line. No one else knows. And they, they, they're completely oblivious to it. Now, the question is, how many people actually know your true inner thoughts? Hmm. 
I, I used the example of Mr. and Mrs., the game show. Do you remember that, Mark, from years ago? We, we've got the board game, and it starts more arguments than anything else in this house. So really? we banned it. Yeah, oh, yeah, wow. <laughs> so for anyone who hasn't had, heard of Mr. and Mrs., they, I always remember it was like an afternoon where somebody's put in a, um, a cubicle with headphones on, and then they're asked, I think, 10 or 15 questions about their their husband or wife that they've been married to for 50 years. You know, what's what's their favourite meal? And, and they win a prize if they manage to guess, like, you know, more than the other contestants. But the thing that absolutely blows me away is how even people that have lived together for 50 years know, still don't know everything about their partner. In fact, they now say that answering 15 questions on Facebook, um, Facebook can work out and know more about you than your closest person in your life, which is pretty scary. That's artificial intelligence for you. But I digress. The point of saying all this was, when you write a book and you put yourself into it, it's fiction. So who knows what is actually really what you're experiencing, thinking have has happened in your life? And what is stuff you're making up? People don't know. You know, but most people don't. So you, unless you actually reveal it to the world and say, actually, yeah, on page 67, that was me. That happened in my life. It's, it's fiction to everyone else. So don't let that hold you back. Go for it. Use it. Right? Write it out on the page. Get it out of you. And, and know that you know, it's up to you as to whether you reveal that in the real world. Yeah, the flip side of that. And just for American viewers, Mr. and Mrs. in the States was known as the newlywed game. Ah, so the newlywed same, game. Same format. Same thing, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but the, the flip side of that is if you write a novel about a serial killer and it's uncannily accurate, you are going to have people <laughs> who will assume. So, you know, th- that's that's all part of the fun of being it an is author is people yeah. will come up to you and assume that I've been involved in a robot invasion or... <laughs> Uh, stuff like that. So, well, yeah. you just never know, right? You just never know. But um, no, no. so, yeah, go for it, everyone. Don't don't hold back. Don't feel precious about writing things. And remember, people won't won't know. They will not know. It's um, it's you know, it's just a brilliant thing to go for. Now, what else? What else jumped out for you, Mark? Um, I just thought he's uh, th- this idea of um, balancing exposition and realism. Uh, was was something that it, again it comes with practice and it's something we talk about a lot on on the academy as well. I, I th- barely a craft coaching um, session goes by without us having some sort of conversation about exposition. Um, but yeah, that's uh, it's interesting that that came up and it is a skill I think that um, that I think um, writers need to get their heads around. Funnily enough, it, this week saw the 40th anniversary of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And again, long-term listeners will know that whenever we talk about exposition, I talk about that scene at the beginning of Raiders where those the two Secret Service guys come to Indy. And that could have been like a James Bond scene where James walks in and M says, right, Bond, this is your mission. Here's the villain. Here's where you got to go. And here's what the stakes are, which is usually quite dry and boring. But the the genius of Lawrence Kasdan's script is he completely subverts it. So these two guys come in and they get it wrong. And Indy corrects them. He says, no, no, this is what it's all about. And not only is it an elegant way of getting across exposition, but it shows his agency and shows us that he's the right man for the job. And he has his passion and excitement for it as well. So, um, so yeah, I love that. It's, um, we, we could, we do a lot of exposition chat over on the Academy. It's something we talk about an awful lot. And it is something, it's something that comes with, um, comes with a bit of experience, but it's always something that trips people up. I think it's one of those things that the, that it, you kind of, at one point it clicks but then you need to keep honing it as a skill as well. So yeah, it's something yeah, yeah. to always be working on, no matter how long you've been writing. It's this fascinating Absolutely. stuff. The one thing that really jumped out for me, Mark, that I loved, Joe said, was when he started talking about how writing makes him feel better. In fact, he said, you know, it makes me feel good. But then what I loved was his, his analogy where he talked about, you know, one of my friends does a triathlon, like an Ironman, um, and it's this discipline of working and training. Yeah, he and lost me there. right so i think it's really fascinating to see how how joe kind of used the metaphor of of triathlons and ironman and i think of people that go you know i know a lot of people listening you probably you know you probably go out and do your you know your 1k run your 5k run you might be bonkers and do 10k but you kind of get into your stride and and it kind of becomes a little bit addictive because of the the kind of dopamine effect of once you once you feel the goodness that it does for you, you want to keep doing it and you want more of it. And if you can get to that stage with writing, 
where despite, you know, and it's like running, you know, there are times where you hit a hill and it's, it's really difficult. There are days you wake up and you don't want to go out in the rain with a, with a cold and, um, you know, uh, busy things that you should be doing. But, you know, so it's a really great metaphor and I love this idea, but really this idea of writing makes me feel good. And I think underlying everything, no matter how hard or bad you think your writing might have been on a particular day, the reason why we keep showing up to write every day is because it does make us feel good in the in the in the big picture of things in the long term. It gives us a sense of purpose. We're creating every day. We're writing something down. We're making magic on a page, and I think it's really important to remember that, especially during the difficult days. Let me let me let me show you something. <clears throat> so, I've taken to handwriting. So I, I sort of alternate from from, and this is transformed how I write. I love it. Uh, and so I woke up this morning, first have breakfast, then come straight in this room and start writing. And I got my character, this is for book three of the Woodville books. I got my character in a situation I had no idea how she was going to get out of it. Genuinely no idea. And what I do is I essentially just start free writing, you know, and it's like a conversation with myself. And whereas normally I'd have sat at the laptop, you've got that winking cursor, you know, glaring at you going, come on in, come on, come on. What you got? Yeah, 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 what you got, got for it, me? Yeah. No, you can't do it, can you? <laughs> so whereas this, I'm just going, okay, so I've written and here are the options and we can do this and we can do that and blah, blah, blah. And when I get to here, you see I've highlighted that. It's like, boom, got it. It was like a page and then I got it. I sussed it. And then four more pages wow. handwritten. And so tomorrow I'll be on the laptop when I get up and I'll have that there and I will translate this scroll into mm. something that vaguely resembles a chapter. And it's the most fun I've had writing a book and I'm using it for a script as well. Cause normally scripts, I go straight to laptop, but I'm yeah. using it for that too. And I know we had Joe Hill on here talking about how he hand writes and it just exercises a different part of your brain. But just since I've started doing this, it's, um, it's like coming out of hypnosis when I finished writing. You know, I'll have a couple of hours in the morning. I come out, it's like, well, okay, got to deal with the real world now. But yeah, it is definitely my happy place. I've always said that there is a direct connection between thought and ink. Mm. I mean, really, I think when, you think, right. when you think about tapping on a keyboard, I mean, I, I'm a big, that's what I do all day, basically. Mm. But I, I always go back. I mean, here's my bookmark always go back to to writing every single day it yeah. just there's something about the art of writing the thing i love about it is is when if you if you're not the best touch typer in the world you don't have to worry about that you don't have to look, no, look no, up no, and no. go oh i misspelt that word you know i you know there's something about the direct connection the complete flow from from your imagination to the end of your pen or pencil whatever you use and I must admit, I'm I'm becoming more and more of a handwriter. Mm. Um, and and even the other day, I was I was I, I've started within this book. I actually haven't. This is a really cool idea, actually. If you don't, if you haven't done this, get yourself an index at the front of your book. Page number all of your um, notepad books if it, they don't come page numbered. It's using actually a, a technique I've been using for a number of years by using a bullet journal, which I absolutely love. If you want to know a little more about that, I talk about it in the academy, but. Um, page number everything and then put an index at the beginning of the book and then as you just write things you know just reference on the index you can find things really easy so what i found the other day is i was in scrivener and and there was a note in there saying um i talk more about this in my bullet journal volume seven page 72 <laughs> like, when would i have ever found that and yeah. I was like, oh my gosh, yeah, I, I wrote about this. I keep finding before I used to find I've already I've already gone over this somewhere else. And and I go to my bullet journals, I pick off volume seven, turn to page 72, and wallop, there is like a complete you know, thought process of these ideas, which is absolutely relevant for what I needed in that moment. I thought I've already I've already thought all this through. And it was it was a melding of um of what I'd created on that day, plus something I'd written a few months back. That's cool because it's slightly different my one because generally what goes on in here by hand is on on the laptop the next day. Although there are things like I've I've stuck little post it notes in for stuff that I might want to refer back to. So I'm slightly more clunky. I I tell you what, life changing. Create a little index, number your pages. I do. I just do odd pages. I don't number mm -hmm. them all. I just do every odd page, um, and then create a little index, which just I mean literally. I, I mean, in my this is my journal. So it's got like every single day that I wrote. It's got my monthly goals. It's got 
ideas for books. It's got trackers. It's got logs. It's got this thing called life manual, which I'm working on right now. There's a lot of that. That's a big, big thing I'm working on right now. Really excited about that. But but it's all here. So if I ever want to go in and click out, take anything about the life manual, I can see all the places where it's where I, even though it's all randomly scattered, like my brain is during the day. I mean, it's like whatever comes in. But indexing, look into bullet journaling if you've not used it before. I love it. And I'm sure people are going to tweet about this and go, oh, I do bullet journal. I love bullet journaling. It's great. If anyone, if anyone's listening to this in the distant future, uh, sort of 150 years from now, and they're going, oh, that's the journal? This would be like the Dead, the dead Sea Scrolls or something. He's... Everyone gather around. It's on video. It's, come and look at it. He's holding it up on the screen. And then they step outside and there's a giant statue of Mr. DeVoe oh. standing over them because how he changed the world. Covered in, with, covered uh, in seagull yeah. crap. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? Weirdly enough, this morning, Mark, I was reading about the beginnings of Amazon. I'm reading a really fun story um, called The Story of Everything. And because I'm just fascinated and I've been involved in technology and the internet since the early days. Um, and, and it talks about the day that they got their first book sale on Amazon and they have this bell that they used to ring, ding, every time they sold a book. And apparently by two weeks, they had to chuck the bell away because it would just be a constant ding, 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 ding. But this, it, just going back to the very beginnings of something and seeing the, you know, the excitement of we sold a book. And, and Bezos was down in the like this tiny little room where they were packing everything. They were working through the night to try and keep up with orders. And, and you do think, yeah, all these things, including every book you're writing, every person listening to this, starts off as a small idea, a, you know, a, a, a little, you know, little thing that pops into your brain. And by the end of it, you've got this incredible piece of work that you've created. So, again, remember that this is all part of the journey and the stages of us creating something, which is really important. It's it's, it's if you're writing it, it's meant to be written. That's how I feel. Someone out there or lots of people out there are waiting for that book. So get on with it. Get writing. Yeah. Get yeah, writing. Listen to us. Get start, writing. Yeah. yeah, start your Iron Man today. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. And um, yeah, I also like to, Joe, just briefly before we dive into social media, I like the fact that, you know, he does try to write every day. He had a word count of one to one and a half thousand words. I think it's really fascinating though. You know, we've got the 200 word a day challenge, which for a lot of people think, oh, such a small amount to write. But actually, when you listen to these authors, there's rarely someone who writes five or 10,000 words a day. Most authors are, yeah. are pushing out 500 words a day, a thousand words if they're, you know, really going for it, um, or 200 words. So, you know, this, it's not like we have to aspire to get to this place where we're writing thousands of words. It's just that consistency of writing. Yep. Daily. It's that habit. So, yeah. That's so get on it. 200wordchallenge.com if you've not joined yet. Get involved. Cool. Excellent stuff. What's happening on social media this week, Mark? You mentioned about got, an interesting queeve. I uh, quit. Oh, well, this is this is amazing. And it has been, it's been on Deadline and Variety and all those kind of big Hollywood uh, news outlets. But uh Queeve, who we love dearly, and he he writes the. Um, I mean, we he, we've got him on the podcast a couple of times, uh, most recently for his book Stranger Times. But he's been self publishing the Dublin series, which started as a trilogy and is now, I, I think, eleven books, including prequels and in between and spin offs and all kinds of other stuff. Um, but this they've been uh, optioned by Chris Addison. Now, Chris Addison, uh, people will know from a mock the, uh, week. In the thick of it. Yeah, exactly. That's all and, I got. Yeah. Uh, and Americans will know him from Veep because he's one of the writers and I think he's directed stuff on Veep as well. Uh, he's also uh, on FX and Sky is a show called Breeders that he's uh, created as well. But he is going to adapt Queeve's Dublin trilogy uh, as a series for television, which is just amazing. amazing. Uh, and it's great because it says, look, the series, which is published by McFory Inc. and has sold over half a million copies, comprises five books. So it's a trilogy with five books. Well done, Queeve. Um, so he's uh, <laughs> a man with one of those faces, The Day That Never Comes, Last Orders, there's a prequel, Angels in the Moonlight, and Dead Man Sins, which just came out this week. Uh, so, yeah, that's amazing news. And Queeve is in the bestseller experiment uh, Facebook group, which if you're, you know, if you're a top tier patron uh you'll get to be in that group with queeve and all sorts of other incredible and amazing people so huge huge congrats to queeve on that news that's brilliant queeve absolutely brilliant 
flying the flag. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, other good news. Uh, Gavin G. Smith, another person we've had on, another writer we've had on the podcast a few times as well. Uh, he says, he's, he's sort of, um, I love Gavin because he's sort of glumly announced that his book was a bestseller. He's, he's, he's tagged us in the tweet. He says, I feel compelled to report. <laughs> <laughs> his book Spec Ops Z, which is a kind of zombie military mashup, high adventure, high octane action, uh, it is an Amazon bestseller on both sides of the pond. Uh, <laughs> so he's like, he's like, quietly let us know this amazing book, which uh, has been around for a while. And this is one of these things as well. You know, if you've got a book that. Uh, you feel, oh, it didn't sell in the first week, so it's done, it's finished, it's over. No, 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 no. No, these books are, are new to all sorts of people. It had a book bub. Gavin's book, uh, Spec Opsy, had a, a book bub this week, and it shot up the charts, and it's staying up there as well. So big congrats to Gavin on that. Brilliant. Well done, Gavin. That's fantastic. And not least, uh, last but by no means least, um, Steve Gowland, who, again, if you're following the 200 words a day uh, hashtag, is a regular contributor. Uh, his second book, Coven of Shadows, has been released, and he sent us a copy, which I've added to the bestseller experiment, Alumni Library. I've had to have a complete reshuffle of my bookshelves because we've now got so many books from people who've heard something on the podcast been inspired by someone on the podcast uh, that i've had to have a complete reshuffle of the shelves because we i actually run out of room um so uh big congrats to steve and everyone who's listened to the podcast and had a book published because of something they heard or inspired by or just you know it's just amazing absolutely that's, amazing that is brilliant that's going to be a difficult conversation though isn't it mark <laughs> with the missus about the, the extension yes the library yeah, we're, yeah. We're, 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 I'll, I'll break it to her uh, somehow I, I think as long as she you know as long as she uh, her books are allowed in there then that's fine so Absolutely. I think she'll be okay with it yeah. <laughs> fantastic stuff and thank you to everyone we love it we love hearing about the the journey that you've had with your book and we really do appreciate I mean this just started off as a bit of fun with somebody sending us their book that they'd written um, and Mark collects them. But if you, um, you know, if you've had an in interesting journey with the podcast and your book, write and tell us, tell us about how the podcast has affected your writing. If it's helped, we had one this week. Oh my gosh. Someone in the Academy said that, um, because of the Academy, um, they didn't give up with writing and they've just been published for the first time, which we know in everyone's, in everyone's journey is an incredible milestone. It gives you belief it gives you the ability to, to know that this is this can happen. And she was there writing to everyone else saying, don't give up, keep going, dreams can come true. And so it was so lovely to read that. So, um, you know, congratulations as well for that. In fact, next week's episode, very, very special episode. We've got someone who, again, sent us a copy of a book, uh, which looks, I'm looking at now, looks absolutely amazing, uh, has had one hell of a journey. And we're going to be talking to that author next week. And that's going to be a very special episode. So do hang around for that one. Absolutely. Don't miss it. Excellent stuff. Now, if you want to get in contact with us, there are many different ways, on social media and the website, aren't there, Mark? Yeah, come to bestsellerexperiment.com. There is a contact tab there. You can drop us a line. Uh, if you come to Facebook, we're Bestseller Experiment, and Twitter and Instagram is at bestsellerxp. Message us, drop us a line. Let us know how you're getting on. Uh, subscribe, rate, and review. Don't ever miss an episode. Subscribe on your podcatcher. Give us a rating, a star rating if you've enjoyed this. And big thanks, as always, to our editors, Dave and JD, whose lives we have made very interesting these last few weeks. So. Yeah, with the... Uh... <laughs> All kinds of latency issues across the pond, should we say. But anyway, the <laughs> magic of what you're hearing, you can see they do an amazing job. Thanks again, guys. And if you would like to join the 200-word challenge and you want to start getting your writing back on track, it's 200wordchallenge.com, 200wordchallenge.com. And if you want to join us in the academy, if you want to be coached by me and Mark, if you want access to just an incredible array of resources that we've got and most importantly you want accountability and you want to be continually inspired by us and your fellow academates think join the academy it is life-changing for many many people so do come and check it out it's academy.bestsellerexperiment.com join us for the webinar next week or this week if you're listening to this on the 21st of june um and with all that said mark it is definitely a goodbye from mark one and a goodbye for Mark Tour. Goodbye. 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 Goodbye.